0: Welcome back to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. And in today's episode, I sit down with Scott McKnight and Laura Beringer. Together, they have written a book that I believe every Christian should read, particularly pastors. Not only should you read it, but you should apply it to your ministry. The book is A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture that Resists abuses of power, and promotes healing. And that is exactly what we talk about today. You will hear Laura share a bit about her experience attending Willow Creek Church. You will also hear early warning signs of a toxic church culture and why a goodness culture is vital. And then towards the end, Scott unpacks a bit of the way the Western business model has negatively impacted the church. Listen to this snippet of what he shares.
1: When I compare the biblical passages about pastors and shepherds to job descriptions in churches, I think there is a huge disconnect, is that these pastors in these megachurches many times are not pastoring people. They're running a business. They're showing up on Sunday. They're running an organization. They're entrepreneurs. And this has changed church culture's more than anything else in the 20th century and 21st century.
0: As you listen to today's conversation, maybe a friend or loved one you know is in ministry or is planning to go into ministry, or maybe it's someone who has been abused by someone in the church. Will you share this episode with them along with the book? It is a much needed conversation and shift that must begin with us. Hello, Scott and Laura, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast.
1: Well, good to be with you.
0: Thank you for having us. You're welcome. It's great to have both of you here. I don't very often get to interview two people at once. And so that's really fun. And we'll get started by just having you guys kind of introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell everybody what your connection is so everyone knows. Um, And either one of you can go first, whoever wants to start.
1: Okay, I am uh, Scott McKnight, and I am a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois, uh, near, you know, sort of western suburbs of Chicago, and I've been teaching almost 40 years uh, New Testament awesome. uh, in seminaries and uh, undergraduate school. So, married, my wife and I grew up together in a small town west of Chicago, way out in Western Illinois, Freeport. And uh, I'm an author and a professor, et cetera. I do preaching. uh, I'm ordained. So
0: that's a little bit about you, right? Just to scratch the
2: surface, I'm sure.
0: So Laura, what about you?
2: I don't have all of those qualifications. (laughs) Me neither. So
0: you're in good company.
2: (laughs) I am a teacher. I've been teaching primary school for more than 20 years. I can't believe that. I've worked with first graders, second graders. This year I'm teaching kindergartners. So my story and landing here is is an unlikely unlikely one. Well,
0: let's jump into what we're here to talk about today. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about the book, obviously, as we go along. But first of all, your family attended Willow Creek Church for a number of years. And so what were some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of serve or serving and attending a church that's just so large and so well known?
2: Well, I would say I don't really want to start with a weakness, but I guess I will because it turns into a strength. We started attending Willow Creek. I'm trying to think. I believe I started attending in the year 2000. And because it is such a large church, it can be very difficult to get plugged into community Mm -hmm. there. So I would say you really have to be, I'm fairly outgoing. So, you know, I eventually made friends and it was fine, but it couldn't be a struggle. It can be hard and intimidating to walk into a room of a thousand or more people and not know anybody. But one of the strengths that, and probably still some of our most memorable times and we look back with fondness are the years of our section community when they 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 really made an effort to make big church small and divided the auditorium up into sections and it actually reminds me a bit of the church we attend now where it it just felt like a smaller community where everybody knew each other Mm -hmm. through the section yeah
1: a, t- a couple things that were impressive to me about Willow. We attended for 10 years. We were never members. Laura and Mark were more involved, yeah. than we ever were. but we lived, it was a 45 minute drive uh, on the weeknights to get there. Amazing amount of evangelism that led mm-hmm. to baptisms. And yeah. this is this is all good. Yeah. You know, for all for all that's mm-hmm. happened in the meantime, I will never discount the fantastic sermons that we heard at Willow Creek, Bill Heibels, John Ortberg, Nancy Beach. And then they had travel, you know, visiting people. Mm -hmm. Those were, were very good. I always felt that Willow Creek wanted to be, wanted to do church, all of church, not just mega church stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. it's often called the attractional Mm -hmm. model. We get everybody to come on Sunday, but the rest of the week, everybody's living somewhere else. Um, I always felt that they tried to work at that. Uh, I, I don't think they did. And I think they surrendered a, a strong sense of discipleship. Uh, it just seemed impossible. I, I, that's what I believe. Now, the other side to me is they didn't have the strength theologically hmm. in an infrastructure and in leadership among the elders and deacons, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they called them elders, but they had other names too, to be able to discern and resist what occurred. It just wasn't there. And that was a culture that allowed, uh, that permitted, that propped up, that sustained, tr- retained Bill Hybels with his dysfunctional powers yes, uh, and, and behaviors. And um, as I look at it now, I think this was one of the biggest mistakes that Willow Creek made. And I am aware that there were people who fought it, but the system was too strong. You know, yeah. what's the language from Star Trek? The Borg. You can't stop the Borg.
0: Yeah, that's something that um, I cannot yeah relate to only because of i'm not the a star board. trek person but the
1: i can't is irresistible no. i think is the language yeah. but
0: i mean i do understand a little bit of the mega church culture and it's interesting as i was reading the book which is called a church called tove i i remember because i went to southland christian church in kentucky and so when mike bro yeah. left to go to willow <laughs> creek we yeah. were just crushed right mm-hmm. and um But also excited for him and that it's just very interesting as I read through and realized like, wow, you know, he really went through um, a lot when he showed up at Willow Creek. And so... Yeah, that's a, that's a conversation for a whole, a whole different um, podcast, but you guys have written this book together and it's really about forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. And so Laura, will you share a little bit of the backstory that led to the writing of this book?
2: Sure. I mean, like I said, it's unlikely for me to be sitting here because I'm a primary grades teacher and how I got involved in this topic is, you know, like I said, an unlikely path. So um, we went right away when the Tribune story broke. This the story about Willow Creek and allegations against Bill Hybels. We were drawn to it immediately because we had left Willow Creek by that time. We hadn't been gone for that long. We left before the scandal, but we were maybe a year out yeah. of having left, and we still have very good friends that attend Willow. Mm-hmm. And so we saw the headline and we're a, kind of in disbelief, didn't really believe it at first. And then we started reading the article and that's really when everything changed for us because we knew the names of the women Yeah, and by we, I mean, my husband and me, he knew one of them quite well, Vonda Dyer, and we just knew them to be people they're credible. They're, they're not people that are going to make up a story to take down bill Hybels the way that he was saying they were. Yeah. And so, um, that really is what engaged us, you know, is, is knowing who they were and feeling like they were as, as time went on and as weeks get on, went on, they were getting, for lack of a better word, they were getting pounded by the church. Their, their character was being attacked and um, nobody was standing up for them. And he, starting that first night, my dad believed them. He told us it was very likely that the story was true. And um, so we really just, I really just pushed him. He would teach us about how they were misusing scripture. And, you know, now I understand that that was spiritual abuse. And, my husband and I felt like we were learning so much from him that we felt like we should, we're benefiting from this, but I really thought from what I was hearing based on conversations I was having with people, how they Mm. were following the church and the anger that was being heaped on the women and the truth tellers. I felt like everybody needs to hear from a theologian because things need to be set straight. This can't be how the story ends.
0: Yeah. Well, and Scott, so What was it like? She comes to you and she says this, you know, what's going on. Give a little bit of your side of that experience.
1: I think we actually sent the Chicago Tribune article to Laura and Mark that, that evening. So we read it. I read it. I was three paragraphs in or so. And I said to my wife, Willow's in big trouble. Bill Heibel's. this, this is going down. Mm. And so I was reading and, and paying attention and Laura would ask me questions and she would tell me the stuff that she was hearing from the Willow side. Of course, I'm not hearing it. People at Willow aren't consulting me. I'm not a part of the church. We had been gone for five or six years. And um, I started to, you know, just start, think my way through it. And it just, because of conversations with Laura and Mark and my wife, Chris, and so many people writing me and asking me, I uh, I was in an airport and sat down and wrote out my thoughts. And um and I sent it to Lauren, Mark and Chris and everybody read it and made suggestions and edits and it just sat there. And this I think I wrote this thing in April. Wow. And then uh we were gone in June. I took students to Israel uh, to uh, Turkey, Greece and Italy on a tour of of New Testament sites. And um when I got back, I called Laura and asked her, I said, "What, what's going on with Willow? And she said, nothing. And I just sort of said right then that I'm going to do something because yeah. these women are telling the truth. Yeah. I was th- thoroughly convinced that the women were telling the truth and that their side needed support. Mm. So I blogged about it. And Amber, I'm, I'm telling you, it was... Um, it was one of those blog posts, uh, you know, that you're sort of made for. Yep. And, uh, I, my voice, even though I wasn't at Willow, uh, I had quite a bit of respect at Willow cause I taught there yep. quite a bit and they listened to me. Some people were mad at me. They thought I was too strong, but even people who thought I was too firm have come to me and said, you weren't, it was just mm-hmm. painful to hear the truth. Yep. And uh, because it wasn't it wasn't harsh at all. It was but it was, you know, let's say what happened. Right. And so I I started writing and then I think I wrote two or three more blog posts over the summer. And that led to uh, Laura pushing me. And I actually had a conversation with a publisher who wanted me to write the story of Willow Creek. And I said, I wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But Laura kept pushing, and I—I <laughs> uh, I, I like to read uh, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany. Yeah, I did i have done a lot of work in German, and so I was reading a book about the pastors during the Holocaust and afterwards, after in Germany after the war, and I was—I I literally was astounded at the parallels. Wow. Between the things they did and the things Willow did and the things I was hearing about other churches, Harvest, the Catholic Church, the Southern Baptist, uh, C.J. Mahaney, just name them. When people are confronted with their sins that are shocking and will destroy their ministry, they do certain patterns. And this is what And this is what I learned. So I started taking notes and we were on vacation. And I took, you know, Lauren Mark didn't know this. I said, I got some ideas. And it became the chapter, it's, it became the chapter uh, called False Narratives. Yes. That's, that's where the book began. Okay. And uh, then, then we constructed stuff around it. But Amber, it was really important to me. Um, and I got a letter yesterday and today from what I would call super insiders at Willow Creek hmm. who have thanked me. Yeah. For what? For the book. Yeah. I wanted the I wanted I didn't want to write an exposé. I wanted it to be redemptive. Right. And I I found that this word tove, goodness and good worked wherever I spoke about it. And I was beginning to teach my classes about tove. So I I wanted to work out the major characteristics of tove because I thought what willow, what harvest, what these churches lack is goodness and Tove. So what are the characteristics of Tove, And what are the things that are the opposite of tove the mm-hmm. moral characteristics? And that's what we worked on. So
0: yeah, and it is a book that I mean, I have honestly recommended it already, probably 15 or 20 times, I sent oh, it wonderful. immediately to my pastor and said, I feel like every pastor should read this book. So I'm sending it on yeah. to you and with all the stuff going on with Robbie Zacharias and people commenting yeah. and me saying, you know, a great book that you should look into yeah, is this one. And so, um, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for both of your voices. And so I want to share a quote from the book. It says, we form church cultures, but we are simultaneously formed by the cultures we've helped form. So in relation to the church. Scott, kind of unpack that a little bit for us.
1: Oh, this, this is critical, Amber, and this is critical for churches because this is general truth. Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. Mm-hmm. That's a split infinitive, but it's David Brooks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you choose to work at a certain company, let's say, when you choose to work at a church, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that church. Moreover, living in a pragmatic utilitarian manner turns you into a utilitarian pragmatist. Mm. And there's more truth in there about church life than many people care to admit. The point he's making is that the culture of of a place you work, your company, the culture of a church Makes you the sort of person who works there, if you don't, and who works there comfortably. If you aren't comfortable, they get rid of you, right? True. This yes, is how absolutely. this is how companies and big churches work, well, in little churches. So it it has to do with the fact that churches aren't simply volunteer societies where anybody can come and give their free opinions and they're all accepted. That's not how it works. Churches become cultures; mm-hmm. they become a society that begins to shape people to be like that society, that culture. This is what uh, we think is one of the most important factors. And I said this over and over to Lauren Mark before anything was ever thought about writing a book is that this is about culture and this is about character Hmm. and good characters produce good cultures and bad toxic characters produce toxic cultures. And look, We all know stories of of toxic cultures. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we're idealists who think churches have to be perfect. Every church is broken. That's right. Every church has its problems. and has toxicities. But it's when pastors and leaders who are to be the best Christians in the church at some level, it's when they are toxic and creating toxicities in the church that it really gets nasty.
0: Well, what would you guys say are a few of the first really early warning signs for people that you're in a toxic church culture? Because it's so easy to overlook it, particularly when you're in, oh goodness, one of these big churches where, I mean, everything's fancy and we get drawn in so easy by the the wooing of the teaching and all of that.
2: You know, that's an interesting question because people have asked me that about Willow Creek and- I suppose there were things that should have been red flags to me at the time that I didn't pick up on or didn't become part of my conscience, conscious Mm -hmm. thinking. But for me, it took leaving Willow Creek and experiencing a totally different culture, which our church feels like a, it's as much of Tove as a church is, I've ever attended and experiencing a different culture to be able to see the toxicity at Willow Creek. Mm. I think it's really hard. Maybe now because I've had experiences and I've done so much research and reading, maybe now I could walk in and see it, but I didn't. I did not. And we attended Willow Creek for almost two decades. Wow.
1: I, I would say, Amber what would bring a big alert to me is a celebrity. Mm -hmm. If the pastor is a celebrity and if there is constant talk about loyalty and Mm. that we're the best church in the world, or, you know, just constantly bragging about the church, um, I am going to be very, very suspicious. Mm. I also would say a warning sign. Toxicity is, uh, n- narcissism and fear and power are the characteristics of these toxic churches, but they're not always easy to see. Uh, and you got to get behind the, the curtain to see, yes. to see these things. But if, if, I, if I'm at a church and I see a celebrity, I'm going to start asking questions. Okay. If I see loyalty and constant building up and bragging about the church, and the pastor and the musicians whatever it is i'm going to be suspicious mm. because uh, they're holding people up at a level that is going to detract from christ mm-hmm. and they are are uh, magnifying the wrong thing
0: absolutely and that
1: is a is a uh, to me is those are some warning signs that some bad things are are going on
2: right and I think people need to know too, what is an anti-celebrity look like? I know what it is now. I, we go to church at church of the redeemer. It's a little Anglican community and our pastor Jay is not treated any more important than anybody else at the okay. church. Sure. He speaks and he's up in front, but after the service is over, he mingles with the rest of us. He's not too important to come in the room with the rest of us and he'll, he knows our names he yeah. he'll walk up to you and hi laura how is your week i mean it i, I remember being astounded by it i thought the pastor knows my name <laughs> like i never <laughs> even had that expectation at willow creek because you can't get close to bill hybels nor did i i never tried to um meaning like you know like you can't even get
0: yes you don't just walk to up a to the right.
2: yeah like you stop by security and all this so yeah i i just i agree with my dad that that would be a huge red flag for me anymore is, can you get to the pastor? Does he know your name? Is he too important to spend time Mm -hmm. with you?
0: Well, and I have to say, you guys wrote about that a little bit when it came to the chapter where you were just talking about the pastors, they need to be serving too. Like, is your pastor serving his people, not just by teaching on a stage, but also in other capacities. And so um, that was really something good for me to consider. But Something that I have witnessed personally, and I know other people who have witnessed personally, is the misapplication of Matthew 18, which you guys write about in chapter three of the book. And so how is Matthew 18 misapplied when it comes to this, you know, abuse of power in church culture? What have you guys witnessed when it comes to that? You
2: know, this one really bothered me. This is one of the issues that I went to my dad about and I said, what is going on? It does. This does not feel right. And he was able to explain it to us. But Willow Creek was saying, and I'm not trying to pick on Willow Creek, but this is. It's your personal experience. Right. This is where it all started for us. They would say that they believe in following Matthew 18 thereby implying that the women going public were not following Matthew 18. And so I was starting to hear it didn't it never settled well with me but I'm a lay person I'm not you know qualified to interpret Matthew 18 I just knew that it didn't feel right mm-hmm. and it also was really bothering me as I would have friends from Willow Creek say they're not following Matthew 18. You were just seeing it every, the, the leader, the elders would say it, yep. the exact, you know, the pastors would say it and they would believe, which of course you should be able to believe your elders and pastors. And they would, they would follow it and repeat it and live it.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've lived it too. And that's
1: what I've experienced like, this two or three witnesses thing. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So well, that's when dad, my dad, in, you know, explained that they weren't even using it correctly. And I encouraged him to write about it. Yes. Tell us. The, you know, the
1: the fundamental principle uh, of Matthew 18 is if you have something against a brother or sister, that's an added word. The Greek is just simply brother. You go and make it right with them. That, that's what Matthew 18, 15 says. If your brother sins, go and point out their fault, etc. If they listen to you, you've won them. But if they will not listen, it's a, if they refuse to listen. So the the point is a, one, a sort of a one-on-one thing. Now, they were applying this to Bill Hybels and the women who were making allegations against him. I've heard this with many pastors use this text with accusations made against them. All right. If John Ortberg and Bill Hybels have a falling out, they should deal with it. They probably should be able to deal with it one-on-one. But when you're dealing with a pastor and a sexual allegation Mm -hmm. that now brings in power play, you have to ask, is this the right text to be using here? Mm. And then you have to ask, is really, is this what this is about? Well, I I understand why Willow said, you, you know, that the women should go to the to Bill Heibel's, and, and how far is that gonna go when you start asking that question? It's gonna stop. Can I also
2: her. interrupt for one second? They did go to him, two of them did, one-on-one. On right. one. So for Willow to say they weren't following it wasn't even true. Wow.
1: I, I pointed this que- this text out to people. There's a text in Deuteronomy that actually deals with this very issue of a man and a woman and allegations. And it doesn't require two or three witnesses. All right, now, this is the other side to it. They also, at Willow Creek, appealed to 1 Timothy 5.19. You can't make an accusation against an elder, a leader in a church, unless there's two or three witnesses. And, well, at this point, women are saying, okay, I am absolutely scared to death to go talk to Bill Hybels, Mm -hmm. and it's not going to go anywhere. And I tried it, and it didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, it was just me and Bill Hybels. It was just me and, you know, whoever. Okay. So now there's not two or three witnesses. So you have to ask, is this the appropriate text to be using here? Because it is almost never the case that when a man is the perpetrator against a, a female, and it's a pastor who has power over this person and has power of a platform to humiliate this person mm-hmm. and you know to render damage in libel and everything else by accusing the woman of other things. But how often does a pastor abuse a woman in front of someone else? I mean, I think the, the chances are zero. Yeah. So that text cannot be worked for this one. And I'm writing a commentary right now on, on First Timothy, okay? Oh, wow. Most scholars would say that that text, that text is is about financial abuse by leaders in the church, mm. and this seems to be what's going on, or teaching abuse. And so you need you don't just start going public about this stuff. You got to try to go with the you know you got to get a couple people and talk to the, to the leader about it. So I, I just felt like it was a misuse of a text that would revictimize women and lead to humiliation and shame. Diane Langberg says that before a woman can confront their abuser, they have to be a long way down on the healing process. Mm -hmm. They just can't, they don't have the strength to handle it. Mm -hmm. And so churches abuse that by manipulating the woman into a situation of silence. They all of a sudden are going to declare the woman has retracted or something like this. Most of the time, these are lies. So, I don't know. That's a longer explanation than I planned on giving.
0: No, but I mean, it is so true that when you're in a situation like that and you do have the power over someone, how easy it is to just sweep it under the rug. Again, we're seeing it right now. I've heard so many people say, yeah. In this Ravi situation, why would someone wait until he died? And I'm like, why don't you read some books from people who are abuse survivors?
1: That's right. And
0: you will hear a lot of the reasons, but until you've walked a mile in someone else's shoes, be very, right. very careful to not believe their accusations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, and I know we're
1: following the, the Ravi story closely.
0: Yes. And I mean, I know with Mary Demuth that you're friends with her as well. And, um, yeah you know, I mean, she's been on the show and her story's incredible. And she's, she's yeah. such a great voice for people to just to try to understand more of a different perspective.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: And it's sad that we even have to have these conversations, but it's the realities. Yeah. So like I said, the book is, t- has the word Tove in it. And you've talked about that a little bit, but I want to make sure the listener understands what is Tove and how is it more than a work's based goodness
1: tov is a master term of the old testament and it is also a frequent term in the new testament goodness is a fruit of the spirit it is also uh so it is a it is a term used a lot in judaism Mm -hmm. but it is a term that makes christians scared uh, we we appeal all the time that there is no none good no not one yeah so if if i were to say to my students you know your goal is to become good there's an, a protestant instinct that that's impossible yeah. and wrong to try to do okay i want to say they have a good instinct here but it's wrong yeah. not to to desire to be good this is a master term in the old testament that describes god God alone is tov. It describes the design of God. You open up page one of your Bible, and everything is tov. In fact, when God's all done, He says it's tov maod. It is very good. That's okay. right. Then, then tov is active. In other words, it is something that people do, and it is something God designed human beings to be like God, God God-like, to be Christ-like. Christ is Tov. So we are called to be good. Now, the the key thing in the New Testament is that we are not Tov on the basis of effort. Uh Um, It is not something that we create ourselves. The Holy Spirit is at work in us through God's grace and transforming powers of God's grace and the Spirit So that over time, someone who follows Jesus and spends time in the presence of God, the Spirit, and the Son will become Tover than they were before.
0: That's right.
1: (laughs) We hope. (laughs) Yes. And so Tov is a master category of the Bible for the moral and uh, let's say the character of those who are connected to Jesus. If you are connected to Jesus, you are connected to someone who is altogether Tove. Uh-huh. And if you spend time in the presence of someone who's altogether Tove, you'll be Tover. And our illustration, you know, one of the things Laura would, would write me, oh, I found a great illustration of a church that's Tove, or I found an illustration of someone who's Tove. I said, no, they got to be dead. We're not going to use any stories of people who are alive because we may find out that the people that we think are Tove are actually not Tove. But so we use Mr. Rogers. Yeah. And one of the amazing things about Mr. Rogers, I've read two or three books about him, is that people who worked with him and for him Mm -hmm. all said he was good. They often use this word good. And they were good when they were around him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
1: That is what it's all about, is we want to be with Jesus. And when we're with Jesus, he'll give us that sense of, I shouldn't do this now because that's not tove. Mm. Whether we're using the word tove or not is not the point. Although I, I do think it's a mighty good word. Uh, and it's, it's catchy.
0: It is catchy. And I mean, I think we need to become a little bit more comfortable about speaking about virtues. We've allowed... Yeah. even our christian culture a little bit to hijack virtues like oh we shouldn't do those things but i'm like christ-like character means that yeah. you become tover mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so so i like it You're i'm sticking with accent. you guys like that's it. right
1: <laughs> I, like I
0: like it i know <laughs> once you mix kentucky uh, florida there's no accent and north carolina together it gets really bad yeah. gets Really <laughs> bad okay well so the second half of the book is all geared towards how to create this Tove type of culture in your church. And so the part, the portion of that that really, really struck me was how the Western business model has really taken root in churches and I was reading that and thinking through every church I have been a part of and just thought, oh my goodness, this is so true. We think in numbers, we think in achievement, and we've really struggled to not make that the priority instead of Christ-likeness. And so as you guys were researching that and writing about that,
2: what did you really discover? Well, my dad has like a big picture observation of it. Mm-hmm. I experienced it at Willow Creek. Because Again, I'm not trying to pick on Willow Creek, but this is my experience and what led to the book. Um, is I, I kind of got caught up in it being involved in section leadership and Mm -hmm. we would go to these training sessions led by Bill Hybels and he called it fill, like he wanted your section to fill. And it was all about inviting people in and making sure that the seats were, had bodies in them. And we also, every year we attended this big event called the leadership summit. My husband used to be the general manager for it. Um, and we would all learn about leadership, it, what it felt like at Willow. And I saw that maybe actually I did see something when I was at Willow Creek, because it often felt to me like the only spiritual gift that matters at Willow Creek is leadership. You never heard about encouragement or hospitality, or it was like, it didn't even matter. That's how it felt. I don't have the gift of leadership. And so I always felt like, well, huh, okay, um, this wow. isn't for me or, you know, and that did bother me. And so my dad, now you can talk bigger picture about no. how this came to be in the church. Yeah.
1: I am not opposed to mega churches. Mm-hmm. I I'm wary of mega churches. And I think that uh, um, that people involved in, in the inner circle of mega churches have temptations that people in smaller churches just don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, money, power, getting rid of people, etc. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to just rail on, on mega churches, but something happened in the United States in the 1970s and 80s. And uh, I think Jerry Falwell, the original Jerry Falwell was a big part of it because his big church became a prominent church because it was on TV all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then this, this was the beginning. Now, Dallas, Criswell, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, with W.A. Criswell was big and nobody talked about it being that big. But Falwell kind of showed on TV a model. And then all of a sudden, with the church growth movement and a change in culture and a change in attitude, there was an explosion of megachurches that started in the 80s. What I noticed is that there was a radical shift also in what was considered the primary gifts of these people. They weren't theologians. They weren't Bible experts, by and large. They were leaders. And this is something that Eugene Peterson griped about endlessly, Almost like an old curmudgeon, <laughs> uh, and even in his book, when he's talking about the pastor, a, me- a memoir of his life, he gripes about mega uh, about the leadership and business models. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, churches, because they were getting so big, and there was so much money involved and buildings, they were they were beginning to adopt business models. Mm-hmm. All right, churches have to conduct themselves in honorable ways with business. And responsible ways. So there's a business side to it. But when the pastor becomes a leader, the leader is not a pastor. And I use this word cloud as an illustration. Yep. I I paid attention to word clouds. And I I know people who are headhunters for pastors. I know, I know these people. And one of them wrote me and said, I'm embarrassed uh, about what we're doing and he was gonna make some changes. But when I compare the biblical passages about pastors and shepherds Mm -hmm. to job descriptions in churches, I think there is a huge disconnect, is that these pastors in these mega churches many times are not pastoring people, they're running a business, they're Mm -hmm. showing up on Sunday, they're running an organization, they're entrepreneurs, and they study business models, and they're not reading the Bible, they're not reading theology, I have to tell them what the new perspective is, because they've never heard of it. They don't even read Christianity today. They don't have time for that. They're reading other things and consumed with other things. And this has changed church cultures more than anything else in the 20th century and 21st century. Churches are no longer Hospitals for sinners that nurture people into Christ-likeness. Mm. They are entertainment centers that attract people and build numbers. A friend of ours, Steve Carter, says it's about butts in seats, bills in plates, and baptisms on the whatever. Three Bs yeah. of megachurches. And, and none of those are measuring character. They're not measuring Tove. They're not measuring Christ-likeness. And that is the reason for the weakness of the church in the Mm -hmm. United States.
0: It's such, it's so discouraging, but that's the thing. It's, there are churches that are smaller that aren't that way. And so that's, yeah, that's the hope that we, you know, cling to. Right. But
1: Amber, I was going to tell you, I think it's 80% of churches in the United States are uh, 75 and under. Really? And, and I teach a lot of these, I teach Pastors in churches like this, and I speak and I talk to people like this, and I find almost all of them just good old people who do the right thing mm-hmm. and teach the Bible, and they're not yeah. not particularly charismatic, but they're as faithful as can be, yeah. and they serve the Lord. They love their family. You know, they're good people. They're right. There's a hundred thousand. No, I don't know, ten thousand <laughs> Tove pastors in the United States, and that you don't I- know any of their names.
0: That's right. Well, and so as we begin to close, let's just say that somebody is listening and they're thinking, oh my goodness, this may be my church. (laughs) I am seeing something now that I have not seen before, or maybe they have seen it and just this kind of confirmed it. What is some encouragement that you, you know, would give to that parishioner who's thinking, oh, what do I do next?
1: Well, Laura and I have talked about this and, uh, you know, we know we have a project ahead of us to talk about Mm -hmm. this. Um, I would say they need to find someone safe Mm -hmm. and secure to talk to. Okay. Maybe even a therapist, but someone with some theological moxie, you know? Okay. And then uh, the thing that Laura and I uh, talk about is um, they need to form a pocket of Tove. They need to find a couple other people, maybe a small group where they can practice Tov and and not allow these toxic things to begin to influence them. Mm. And then hope that there's other people who catch that vision and begin to spread it out. Um, Amber, I was teaching a class, in the class was a student who had a PhD in organizational transformation. And after I presented my stuff on Tov and all my (laughs) glorious works, he says to me, well, he says, you've got some pretty good terms. He said, uh, you're not using the right terms for organizational transformation. But he said, <laughs> here's what we teach. It takes seven years wow. to transform an organization. So it's not going to be a series of sermons. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be from the ground up, bottom up transformation, not top down. Mm. People at the bottom have got to be Tove. And as they become told, they will not permit toxicity to wow. grow and become fertile in their church.
0: Mm, that's powerful.
2: Laura, anything to add to that? Or you? No, I mean, that says it all. I, I just have one word, resist. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, guys,
0: I am so grateful for you writing this. I will continue to share the book. And I know the two of you... Haven't you partnered on, did you all partner on the Jesus Creed together or just on the children's book? Share that. So our listeners know other, I mean, Scott, I know you've written all kinds of books, but
1: yeah. No, Laura didn't help me with Jesus Creed, but we, uh, she wrote a little book for children.
0: Okay. The
2: Jesus Creed for children.
0: That's right. Okay. And I haven't read that one yet. I'm going to have to get that because I have perfect age children for that. So it's it's about teaching them
2: to love God and love other people, but, written for a child. Right. Well,
0: guys, thanks so much for your time and again for this book.
1: Well, thank you, Amber.
0: Thank you for having us.
2: It was nice to be with you.
0: Well, I hope this conversation has you thinking about ways you can begin cultivating a goodness culture in your home and church. I would love to hear what resonated with you or who you decided to send the episode to. Email me at graceenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Grace Enough Podcast underscore Amber. I look forward to hearing from you.
2: Thank you for listening
1: to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.